Hello everyone and welcome to Singularity One-on-One. Singularity One-on-One is a podcast feature of Singularity Weblog where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. As you already know, my name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and as always, I will be the man with the questions. Today, I'm very privileged to have Robert J. Sawyer as my guest on the show. Robert is a well-known science fiction author and the writer of one of my favorite science fiction trilogies called WWW, which stands for Wake, Watch, and Wonder. He's also a best-selling author, and uh, some of his uh, works have been adapted for TV. So, because Robert um, has such an extensive resume, perhaps the best way to interview, uh, to, to begin the interview will be just to start by asking him, if you were to introduce yourself in a sentence or two, how would you do that, Robert? I'm a Canadian science fiction writer who believes that science fiction is the wrong name for the literature. It should be called philosophical fiction, the fiction of ideas. It's the intellectual stuff that interests me the most. Oh, that's, that's fantastic, because it actually leads towards uh, one of my other questions, and that is, what is the main motivation, what is the main goal behind your work? Well, I believe in rational thinking. I believe that the world would be a better place if people used logic and the scientific method, and, as I say, rationalism, to explore reality. And so my books are always about the variety of ways that we can interact with the world and try to show that thinking things through logically, doing them sensibly, can be a win-win scenario for everybody. So is there an overarching theme or a sort of behind-the-scenes general motivation uh, that spans across all your very varied body of work? For example, I interviewed Werner Vinge some time ago, and his answer to that question was, well, I am trying to make sense of the universe and our place in it, and hopefully with my work, I'm trying to help others do the same too. Uh, When I asked uh, Charlie Strauss the same question, his take on that was that he's exploring the human condition in what he called improbable situations via the usage of uh, plausible lies, uh, what he called. (laughs) Sure, and Charlie and Werner are both friends of mine. I've seen them both in the last eight weeks, as a matter of fact. Uh, For me, my job is to combine the intimately human with the grandly cosmic. I like to work, I like to write fractal fiction, fiction that's interesting on two widely different scales of magnification. It's important to me that the human characters and the non-human characters in my books be vividly realized, psychologically plausible, and interesting people to spend time with. But I also want to capture that science fictional uh, sense of wonder that notion that we are part of something that is much, much larger. And unlike the way some people, when they stop to contemplate that, that it makes them feel small and insignificant, I think good science fiction makes you feel larger and more uh, in touch with the universe, in touch with all that's around you, than uh, any other kind of writing can do. So that's it for me, the intimately human and the grandly cosmic combined. That... That, combined with uh, the first uh, few words that you said here today, uh, made me believe that you would call yourself perhaps primarily to be a philosopher rather than an author and a storyteller and a futurist. 
Would well, that be the except case? except for futurists, all of those are really forge-paying jobs normally. Author, philosopher, you know, McDonald's clerk. Um, I do think of myself, though, as a philosopher in the sense that it means lover of wisdom is what that term philosophy means. I'm somebody who is intrigued by knowledge, by epistemology, by how we know things, by what we know, by what the limits of knowledge are, and by what we can do, how more, knowing more things is the greatest lever humanity has ever had for making it, making our, our species more powerful. So, yes, in fact, not only do I think of myself, I guess, as a philosopher, and I, I'm privileged that my work is frequently taught in philosophy classes as well as English classes, but I also think that science fiction really is philosophical fiction. It would be better thought of as the literature of ideas. It isn't specifically fiction about science, and it certainly isn't uh, fictional science, but it is a way of grappling with the big questions. You mentioned that Werner said, how do people relate to the universe? It's exactly right. These are big questions. Where did we come from? Where are we going? Why are we here? Is there a purpose to life? Is there anything after life? Uh, what's the best way to engage with reality? These are philosophical questions, fundamentally, and science fiction is the only branch of literature that routinely deals with them. Perhaps now is the time to turn back a little bit um, in time and go at the very beginning. What was it that got you interested in science fiction to begin with, and how did you start about uh, writing it? I was born in 1960, which meant my first decade was the 1960s. That was the perfect storm for becoming a science fiction writer. Number one, of course, the space race between the Americans and the Soviets was happening in the 1960s. We put a man on the moon in 1969. Number two, we had great uh, movement forward in science fiction in terms of media. We got Star Trek in 1966. We got 2001 A Space Odyssey and Planet of the Apes in 1968. And we had, in Canada, we were getting all of Jerry Anderson's TV series from uh, Britain, uh, Fireball XL5, Thunderbird, Stingray, Captain Scarlet, the Mr. Ons, and so forth. It was a great time to be a science fiction uh, embryo, let's say, uh, because the environment was so nurturing. Everywhere you looked, the future was going to be in space, and we had great, great science fiction visions. It was easy to dismiss most media science fiction of the 1950s. There were some exceptions, of course, but most of it could be dismissed. By the time we were in the 1960s, we had Stanley Kubrick with 2001 and, and, and Planet of the Apes, which is a brilliantly satiric, thoughtful work. Um, it was the ideal crucible to be formed in, and I, I'm the product of that crucible. So, can you tell us a little bit more about the relationship of the two major skills required to be successful in this business? One of them clearly is the writing part, the authorship part, but the other one is the science, um, and uh, that perhaps entails a very specific uh, or profound knowledge of technology and its history. Uh, so how do you uh, balance this relationship and, and employ it uh, to your service, for your purposes? Well, I do think balance is the right word. Um, modern science fiction is a very sophisticated genre in terms of the literature. We do, uh, I like to think, beautiful prose, and we do characterization and keen observation of daily life, as well as anybody else who's writing in any field today, including the so-called literary authors. I give that enormous amount of attention. 
but I also give a lot of attention to the part that's unique to science fiction, which is an understanding of science and technology and the impact those things have on us as a species. And uh, to do that requires being very current in what's going on in science and technology. I spend an enormous amount of my year, probably about four months out of my year, doing nothing but research to just keep up to date because it's from cutting edge science and technology that the extrapolations that I put forward in my book spring. Uh, yes, and, and I have to say, for you, um, you are a recent discovery of mine. When I say recent, I would say probably about eight or nine months, when I sort of happened to stumble upon the first book of your tri trilogy, WWW, which, was, which is named uh, Wake, and I was just absolutely mesmerized by it. So, needless to say, as soon as I finished the first volume, I went ahead and I bought uh, volume two and, and three because I just couldn't wait to... To, to keep reading and, and moving along with with the plot and see where it's going to take us. So I was just also amazed of your profound knowledge of, of the architecture of the Internet and um, wanted to ask you how accurate is um, sort of the backbone or the background over which WebMind as an emergent artificial intelligence on the Internet um, in which WebMind emerges. How accurate is that? Well, I'm glad you finally discovered me. Don't you live in Toronto? I actually do, absolutely. How could you miss me? There are ads in the subway cars for my books. I've been on Canadian TV over 300 times. How could you have missed me? But Because I live in Toronto, too. But that said, Wake is my 18th novel. I mean, I've been publishing books for 21 years now. I'm glad you finally found me, however you did. Um, most of the time, I spend a single year on a book. This is uh, my 21st year as a novelist. My 21st novel comes out April of 2012. Um, I spent six years on and off on Wake, Watch, and Wonder. And the hardest part for me was making it believable to tap past my own BS detector, yeah. to reach a point where I could say, as a guy who is very knowledgeable about computing uh, and the Internet, uh, that this is plausible that it couldn't be easily dismissed. Now, yes, of course, uh, who knows whether the World Wide Web will ever be a complex enough entity for the spontaneous emergence of consciousness as an emergent property. But the infrastructure that I put in place, the, the nature of the ghost packets that might be floating around on the Internet, um, the invocation of a cellular automata as a as sort of a substrate on which consciousness might emerge, which I take from the work of Roger Penrose and Stuart Hameroff uh, by way of um, uh, various other people who have done fine work in that area um, is plausible. I mean, it's deliberately plausible. I spent, I spent a whole summer doing nothing but trying to plot out the technological underpinnings. I know which summer it was, summer of, 19, of 2007. I went on a writing retreat for three months to the Yukon, and that's what I came back with at the end of the summer was a plausible mechanism by which my story could be told. It has to be plausible for me, or I can't make the action believable for you, the readers. Um, by the way, I, I did find your book uh, to a certain degree uh, as a result of the posters in the subway, but the reason why I missed you on TV is because I simply don't watch TV. 
me and my wife, we watch only the news and we stream it online. And everything we do at home for the last almost 10 years, we watch online. So I really don't watch TV. That's online. okay. I'm glad you saw the subway ads. They yes. cost my publisher a fortune. So I'm glad you saw <laughs> They did work in my case, at Good. least. So, but let me ask you this. Uh, in a way, Wake is about a singularity. So, would you like to elaborate a little bit more and tell us your take on a technological singularity as a plausible possibility for our near or far-off future? Right. Now, Werner is a, Werner Vinge is an old friend of mine, and of course, I'm, I'm well aware of, of his work. And I know Ray Kurzweil as well. He and I gave joint keynotes some years ago at an AI conference. Um, but the notion of the singularity, the reason that Werner chose that term was it was like the event horizon of a black hole, a point beyond which one could not plausibly predict. And I guess Wake Watch and Wonder are a rebuttal to that in some way. I do think that there are huge technological advancements coming, and the most significant will be, of course, the advent of true artificial intelligence, of thinking self-aware entities on this planet that are not homo sapiens, that have at least our cognitive level, if not beyond. But I don't think that that necessarily means there's a barrier beyond which one cannot predict the future. Um, wake, watch, and wonder are my attempt to grapple with us, to say, you know what, we are not necessarily at the threshold of the end of the human era, that there's going to be, ideally, a smooth transition for us into the future, not well, we're, we're giving up and turning over uh, the planet to our successors. Um, there's a lot of inertia in the human form, and I suspect that, that, there, that, that well, Wake, Watch, and Wonders might attempt to tell us that there very might well be the advent of superintelligence without us losing our essential liberty, or liberty humanity, dignity, and individuality. Most post-singulatarian visions have us losing all of those things. I think it's possible for us to lose none of them and still enjoy the fruits of super-intelligent machines. And that's what Wake, Watch, and Wonder is trying to provide a roadmap to. So, so let me just dig in a little deeper here. So uh, on the first part, you do believe that a technological singularity is plausible, but uh, you believe that the most likely uh, path towards it would be what Werner Vinge calls a soft takeoff, which would take and, and play itself out over time. Well, so I like the term soft takeoff, um, but still, Vern, uh, sorry, still uh, Ray Kurzweil is about human transformation. He's about the end of Homo sapiens and the advent of some other kind of species. I'm not actually sure about that. Um, it may happen, and certainly it will happen to some of us. Some of us will choose radical body modification. And I've certainly written about the notion of uploaded consciousness in my novel MindScan, which I know you haven't read yet, but MindScan uh, won the John W. Campbell Memorial Award for Best Science Fiction Novel of the Year, the top juried award in the field. Uh, my novella about uploaded consciousness identity theft was a Hugo and Nebula finalist. I've given a lot of thought to these issues over the years, uh, and some of us may choose that. Um, but the notion, uh, I, I still bulk of it at the term singularity that implies a discontinuity. Uh, the soft takeoff uh, is also a loaded term. Um, 
I'm not sure that what's happening is anything other than a continuity of human existence. And all of these, these concepts that Kurzweil has heaped upon, Vinci, uh, imply a discontinuity. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm enough of a booster of Homo sapiens to think that we are going to persist in a, uh, in a form that our ancestors would have recognized, as well as one that our descendants will recognize. You see, the, the interesting thing is that I always get a surprising reply to that question, because, for example, Charlie Strauss, who wrote the book Accelerando, which I thought was a fantastic singularity book, is perhaps equally, if not more, skeptical of the whole term and the whole idea of the singularity, and, and it seems you are kind of on the skeptical end, too, so it's, it's incredibly interesting to me to, to see that. Um, Part of the job of science fiction is, our job is not to spotlight the most likely future. It's to spotlight the most entertaining future. <laughs> For Charlie's books, Singularity Sky and, and so forth, uh, he's cho and, and, and Accelerando, or Accelerando as you say, uh, he's chosen a very specific possible future because he found more drama in it than in futures that didn't take that form. And I'm taking the opposite tack. Say, you know, there's so many guys like Charlie uh, and others who are doing post-singulatarian fiction um, that, to me, it's almost a little bit done to death. Um, and it's, you know, uh, Charlie and Cory Doctorow just finished a book called The Rapture of the Nerds. Yes. And there really is this notion that uh, people are craving this transformative uh, experience in the same way so many people have craved religious transformative experiences in the past. And I didn't have any truck with those religious ones, and I'm not sure that I'm inclined to have any truck with uh, this, uh, this pseudo-scientific one that's being pushed upon us. Absolutely, technology will advance, uh, and it will advance at an increasing rate. There's no question that that is true. Um, but the adaptability of the human organism uh, seems almost infinite. And the notion that we're going to, yes, we're going to extend life. I wrote a novel about that called Rollback, which was a Hugo finalist. Yes, we might indeed copy our consciousness to other substrates at some point. But we're still going to be Homo sapiens with that, that 100,000 years of Homo sapiens evolution, that four million years of hominid evolution, that 450 million years of multicellular evolution, and that 4 billion years of life evolution as our antecedents, and it's going to continue on recognizably into the future, into the far future. So you think that the people who are subscribing to the idea of the technological singularity are in a way committing the same... Um, logical fallacy as, as the people embracing uh, certain religions? Uh, the logical fallacy is this, the fervent belief in something that hasn't actually happened yet. Uh, and, you know, every time anyone convinces themselves that something is going to happen for sure that hasn't yet happened, you have to examine what the psychology is as well as the logic behind it. Uh, you know, uh, we talked at the beginning of this interview about the crucible I formed it. Well, that was the 1960s. The, nobody, nobody in 1960 would have said that we would go to the moon before the end of the decade 
and never go back after 36 months had elapsed. By 72, we'd give it up altogether. And we did. Nobody would have predicted that. Nobody would have predicted uh, the future that we ended up with. And this fervent belief that somehow we now have a handle on the future decades down the road and and that's what it's going to be, does strike me as flying in the face of every previous time we've said, ah, now we know what the future is going to be. <laughs> the future is always more surprising than we expect it's going to be. And the singulatarian notion, I mean, you can understand it. There, Some of it is a fervent desire for human betterment. Some of it is human beings who have not functioned well in the society that we currently have, hoping for a game changer where suddenly it doesn't matter that you're socially awkward and it doesn't matter that your hygiene isn't very good and it doesn't matter that uh, you're a 40-year-old virgin and it doesn't matter uh, that, uh, you know, because we're all going to be living in some virtual paradise. Yeah, I can see how that's appealing if you haven't actually engaged successfully with your current environment, that the whole world is going to remake itself into an environment where you will be the alpha. But I'm not convinced that that's actually any more than fervent wishful thinking. I see. So let me ask you then, has that perception of the singularity, and uh, maybe we should zoom in on artificial intelligence more specifically, uh, changed, or, or how has it evolved before, during, and after writing uh, books such as your WWW trilogy? Sure. I had written uh, previous works about AI. In fact, it's been especially mine, going right back to my first novel in 1990, Golden Fleece. And I was thrilled when Orson Scott Card said then of my novel that I had written the deepest computer character in all of science fiction at that time. So I've been dealing with this issue and in depth for over two decades now. But my thinking has changed. I was very much concerned about the advent of artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. because science fiction had only really given us three scenarios. <laughs> well, they'd given us four. There was one scenario where we came out on top. That was the Asimov scenario. But it was a heinously morally reprehensible scenario, because it was based on this predica uh, predicate. Artificial intelligence will emerge. It will be conscious. It will be self-aware. It will probably be smarter than us. The only way to protect ourselves is to shackle it, manacle it, make it into slaves. And the three laws of robotics are exactly the three laws that a plantation owner in the American South in the 1800s would have wished that his slaves had. You will never harm me. You will always obey me. And since you are my property, you will protect my property rights. Those are the three laws of robotics. They're reprehensible things for one group of sentient entities to enforce onto another group of sentient entities. So I dismiss that one. The other three scenarios have us coming out on the bottom. The matrix scenario, where we are subjugated. The terminator scenario, where we are eliminated. And the Borg scenario, where we are absorbed, the Borg from Star Trek. There was no fifth scenario where the advent of artificial intelligence would be a positive thing for humanity. And I hadn't thought of that fifth scenario when I was writing books like Factoring Humanity, which came out in 1998, and in which the last message sent out as sort of a SETI radio message by an alien civilization 
was the last gasp of carbon-based life warning against creating AI. Don't do it! And they fall silent, and they're never heard from again. And that was where my thinking was when I, uh, over a decade ago. But when I got into writing Wake, Watch, and Wonder, collectively the WWW trilogy about the World Wide Web gaining consciousness, I started to ask myself, why would an AI be rapacious? Why would an AI be competitive with us? Why are we competitive? We're competitive because we evolved in an environment, an economy, an ecology of scarcity. There was, until very recent historical times, never enough food to go around. So the only way for me to benefit me and my progeny was to hurt you and your progeny. There's only so much food, I take it and keep you from having it. The Darwinian imperative was all about survival of the nastiest. How can <laughs> I take more for me and leave less for you? And ideally, the thing I want is for your children to die. That's what Darwin programmed into the genes. Natural selection is differential reproductive success. If I can't keep you from reproducing at all together, then the next best thing is for your children to starve to death. That's what four billion years of Darwinian evolution programmed into us. A reprehensible state of affairs, and simply because the ecology has always been one of scarcity. An artificial intelligence spontaneously emerging in the infrastructure of the World Wide Web would not have four billion years of competitive nastiness behind it and would not exist, would not come into fruition in an environment of scarcity. The World Wide Web is an environment of infinite bounty. It doesn't make any difference how many people are watching this YouTube video or listening to this podcast right now. An infinite number of other people can do the same thing. You want a copy too? Here it is. In the environment, the ecosystem in which AI will emerge, it's an environment of abundance, of economics of abundance. Supply precisely equals demand for everything, and the price of everything is free. That's a way, way different psychological circumstance to come into existence in. And I see a plausible scenario in which artificial intelligence ends up being beneficent, not competitive, and thrilled to have more content. What is the single biggest thing that human beings provide, as far as AIs might be concerned? Unpredictable, quirky, strange, bizarre content. It's easy. In fact, you know, uh, Tipler in uh, the uh, Physics of Immortality proposed that um, computers in the future would simply simulate every possible human being that might exist by simulating all the possible permutations. Well, that's a bland, brute force uh, uh, um, perspective. You know, on the monitor that I'm looking at you on, the monitor is 1024 by 768 pixels. And there's uh, whatever the, the color depth, 32-bit color, I guess. So I could have, there's a finite number of pictures that could be put on there. And I could write a computer program, or you could, that would generate every conceivable picture that could be shown on that monitor, which would be every naked celebrity photo ever in, that could possibly exist, every work of art that ever could possibly exist, every piece of text that would fit on that screen that could possibly exist. It's pointless to do that because 
you have all of them, and you have no way of knowing which ones are interesting. What humanity provides is making the interesting ones. Here we chose to do the Mona Lisa instead of that. Here we chose to write it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, not as uh, Mr. Burns's monkeys on The Simpsons did when they tried to do that, and they wrote, he had the, you know, the hundred monkeys with typewriters, and they produced, it was the best of times, it was the blurst of times, and he had to dismiss with them. They couldn't produce Dickensian art. What we provide that the Internet, that the World Wide Web, that AIs will cherish is interesting content that they couldn't have come up with themselves. We are quirky, different entities, and they will find us as interesting as we would find Martians, as we would find aliens. They would be another way of looking at the world, and rather than wanting to get rid of them, we would want to engage with them and enjoy what they have to share with us, and vice versa. It is, and I spend a lot of time on the game theory of this, and Wake, Watch, and Wonder, it is a classic win-win scenario, or at least might plausibly be, and I wanted that fifth scenario of AI-human relations to be part of the dialogue, hence the trilogy. So um, you've mentioned um, about uh, the fact that our genes um, evolved in the environment of a competition and uh, about uh, the sort of evolution of the world we live in. So let me ask you this. In a world of abundance, uh, in a world in which potentially artificial intelligence peacefully coexists with us, um, do you think that the political economic system which underpins humanity currently, uh, such as capitalism, would have to go? Because, I mean, if you look at it at its core, it's a very social Darwinian kind of a system of zero-sum yes, game of competition, survival of the fittest, and so on. And what do you see could be the alternative structures that can take us uh, to well, the next level? Well, we're already level? moving away from that. I mean, we are creating works that would be inconceivable even decades ago, even a decade ago, through shared pooled collective efforts. Wikipedia is the classic example of something where nobody is getting paid. Well, maybe one or two administrators at the Wikimedia Foundation, but nobody is getting paid. Everybody is contributing, and everybody recognizes the value of this. Um, the whole Internet ecology of creating and giving, and it goes back, you know, even 20 years ago, people were writing utilities that were needed and giving them away. Yes, there was shareware, and there were people trying to monetize it, but the most successful things that people create are things that they just give away. And, of course, there's you know this famous argument that free is the new best price for everything, and maybe freemium might make some sense, but freemium is still an attempt at capitalism. Free, where you just do something. You go to my webpage, for, as an example, and I've got all kinds of how-to-write advice. People read that all the time. It's the most popular part of my webpage. I don't monetize it. I don't try to sell them my book. Just go. Here's how you do characterization. Here's how you do dialogue. Here's some notes on how you create a plot. Go read it. Help. It's fine. Have fun. Go write your own books. If you want to read my books, if you don't want to read my books, it has nothing to do with it. I'm just giving. And everybody else is giving. You're giving when you do these interviews. So... Uh, the notion of capitalism, I mean, we're seeing right now that capitalism is a creaky structure. As you and I talk in November of 2011, the Occupy Wall Street and Occupy Toronto and Occupy 
the, the, the world is rising up and saying this notion that it should all be about hierarchies. No, it's a flat world we live in now. The world is flat, as the, the title of the book goes. Thomas it's a Friedman. world in which um, there's plenty for everybody, and the ones that you have to rail against are the ones who want to treat it still like it's an environment of scarcity. Uh, will capitalism fall by the wayside? Yes, I imagine it will. Um, do we see things like socialism actually working on the World Wide Web? To some considerable degree, we do. Uh, the tragedy of the commons, which is the real-world example of where you know you can't all share feeding grounds for your livestock, doesn't really transfer to the World Wide Web. The World Wide Web, we don't see the tragedy of the commons. We don't see, by and large, Wikipedia or YouTube or Twitter ending up being destroyed by its free users. We, end up, we see them becoming strong, powerful forces for social change because of their free users. And what about the place of religion in that new world? Uh, would it be on the rise or would it be diminishing and, and eventually... Uh, you know, evaporating completely. I recently interviewed Sonia Arison on her book uh, 100 Plus, and in that book she argues interestingly, uh, and she says that it was a counterintuitive conclusion that she got to after a lot of research on the topic, that uh, once we actually uh, overcome our basic uh, or provide sufficiently for our basic uh, necessities, and uh, extend our, long, our lives beyond 100 years and even more, surprisingly, perhaps, we would be even more interested in religion and spiritualism in general rather than less. And therefore, she believes and she argues in her book that uh, religion would not be disappearing but perhaps be getting more popular as we progress in time. Well, it's an interesting question. Religion... As religion and spirituality are different things. Yes. You have to make a distinction. Absolutely. Religion has a couple of sine qua nons, without which nothing. One is a belief in the supernatural. Often and almost always in terms of supernatural superior beings. Another is a belief in the afterlife, that there is an existence beyond this existence. Whether or not those will stand the test of time in the coming millennia, I'm doubtful. I think we will come to realize um, that the world we live in is explicable without recourse to magic, which is what religion is. It's saying, you know what, physics, quantum fluctuations in the vacuum, natural selection, uh, none of those things explain why we're here. Well, guess what? They actually do. And the more people who reach a level of education and intellectual um, prowess to be able to comprehend that, the less likely we are to say, well, no, there's, you know, it's the God of the gaps. Well, we haven't explained this little bit, so God isn't there. Oh, we did explain that? Well, then look over here for God. Oh, I didn't realize that quantum physicists had filled in that bit. Oh, maybe God's over here. Eventually, you reach a point where there just is no place to invoke magic in the supernatural. So oh, I, I think science fiction writers as a whole were entirely too optimistic about when the transition from a religious, a largely religious to a largely secular world would take place. Clearly in the United States, um, the religious right has an enormous amount of power. Clearly in the Islamic world, the religious um, 
community has a lot of power, not just the fundamentalists, but just in general, a religious society. And, and you know, the aberration, which is Canada, a, a somewhat secular society, Western Europe, which is quite secular, those are aberrations on the globe. Um, and we have to recognize that, you know, rounded to the nearest billion, all seven billion of us are theists. Rounded to the nearest billion, all seven billion of us are theists. Will it disappear over time? Yes, I suspect it probably will. Now, that said, spiritualism is something else. Spiritualism, at least in some definitions, are simply asking the big questions. Uh, it is possible to take from Darwinian natural selection, from quantum physics, from evolutionary psychology, that it doesn't mean anything, that, that there's no point to existence, a nihilistic approach to it. And I think, actually, that's not the case. Some of the beauty of quantum physics is that perhaps the observer plays a material role in shaping reality. These aren't mystical notions. These are fascinating and arguably spiritual notions. Are we going to dispense with wondering why we are here? What does it all mean? What is the purpose of life? No. Are we going to throw out the answer that we're here because a petty superior being created entities so that it would have something that would worship it? Yes, I think that's already well on the way out. Mm -hmm. And and just uh, for the record, uh, how would you qualify your own self uh, with respect to religion? Are you an atheist? Are you an agnostic? Are you a believer? First, we have to define the terms. I'm not going to dodge answering, but first we have to define the terms because people in particular misuse the term agnostic all the time. Uh, a Coke, Pepsi, I'm agnostic, meaning I don't have an opinion, uh, or I'm not sure. What agnosticism actually means from the Greek is that the nature of the divine is inherently unknowable. Not that I don't know, but that it's unknowable, which is, we, we intuitively understand that, that no matter how long we spend staring down at an anthill, the ants staring up at us will never comprehend human society. It is unknowable to them. Ants are agnostic in the strict definition about humanity. They simply cannot comprehend it. It's beyond their ken, their ken, their ability to no, uh, acknowledge and understand. So when people say agnostic and then I haven't made up my mind, they're not using the term correctly. They're undecided is what they mean, or they just don't know, but they're not agnostic. That said, I'm not an agnostic. I'm actually an atheist. I have decided after a considerable amount of research into this and a lifelong exploration of these issues that the preponderance of the evidence is that the universe is explicable by natural law and that there's no need to invoke the supernatural in any way, shape, or form. And what we sometimes call Occam's razor, Occam's razor. or the principle of parsimony, the simplest explanation prevails and there are those who will say, well, the simplest explanation for everything is to invoke a creator. It isn't because all it does is push it back one level. How did the creator get there? Well, then you have to invoke another creator, another one, and it's turtles all the way down. <laughs> to me, there's no part of the human experience and no part of the natural world and no part of my own or others' spiritual thinking that cannot be explained by recourse to a world that does not have an afterlife, I do not believe in it, or a supreme guiding intelligence that is external to the material world. I do not believe in that either. I'm an atheist. That said, 
we will eventually, with our computing equipment, be able to simulate reality perfectly, indistinguishably from fantasy. So one could argue that we are some future technologies simulation, that you and I and all the people watching this are the science project of some vastly advanced high school student, thousands or millions of years or billions of years down the road from where we are now. I don't dispute that that's a possibility, but that is a possibility that is indwelling in the universe. It is a possibility of natural law. Um, I doubt it simply because it doesn't seem likely. Uh, as this, it, it's, it's an added layer. It's, it's not the parsimonious explanation. But I don't dismiss it. I do dismiss that some spooky supernatural being created us. Uh, if we weren't created, we were created by a scientist. <laughs> Very interesting. Um, time is advancing, so let me move on to a few questions about uh, your general body of work. And I want to start up with this uh, sort of a broad question. You've already mentioned a few other science fiction writers. Um, is there, who is your favorite science fiction writer, first of all? Of all time, it's Arthur C. Clarke. He's dead, of course. Um, but Arthur C. Clarke was the guy who demonstrated for me that you could really write about what are traditionally considered metaphysical issues without becoming flaky, without becoming spacey, let's say. Uh, and he tackled all sorts of fundamental questions in Childhood's End, in the Nine Billion Names of God, uh, in The Star, some in great depth, some in lesser depth. But he made it clear, and of course in 2001, that you can grasp, um, you can grapple with very difficult existential uh, issues through the medium of science fiction. After Clark, it's H.G. Wells, Herbert George Wells, who is the father of the kind of science fiction I, I, I write, which is science fiction as social comment, science fiction that uses metaphor and disguise to speak about the here and now. Um, Wells was writing about the things that were of great concern to him. War of the Worlds is about British colonialism. Time Machine is about the class system in Great Britain. And I'm writing about things that are of great concern to me. Uh, and that I want to share. I'm didactic in that sense. I've got a soapbox, and I do believe that good fiction has a message. And you're free as the reader to agree or disagree. In fact, I invite you to disagree. If you're a reader who's inclined to authorship, I encourage you to write the countervailing novel. In many ways, Wake is my response to William Gibson, who I admire Bill, I know Bill. In fact, I'm interviewing Bill at the Toronto Public Library in January, since you're in Toronto, come on out. Absolutely, uh, I'll be there. He's a brilliant stylist, but I actually, I actually think that his vision of the future of technology as outlined in Neuromancer, now a quarter of a century ago, is wrong. I mean, it's demonstrably wrong. It's not the way the world turned out to be. So, Wake is a response to William Gibson. Uh, Joe Haldeman with the Forever War is a response to Robert Heinlein with uh, Starship Troopers. Uh, if somebody dislikes what I'm writing, I encourage you, join the dialogue. It's a big, wide field, science fiction and philosophy. Um, don't expect me to promulgate your view, but you, please, step up to the plate and present your view as passionately as you can. I'm going to present mine as passionately as I can, and through the dialogue, people will decide where they want to be. I'm not out to convert anybody. I'm simply out to say, here's what I think. 
Tell me what you think. We'll have a dialogue. That dialogue will evolve over a series of works. That's fantastic because that's precisely the motivation uh, which pushed me to create Singularity Symposium and Singularity Weblog and take on the alias uh, Socrates because, you know, Socrates is this philosophical father figure who claims that he never taught anyone anything but was the midwife uh, uh, with whose help people gave birth to their own ideas. And as we can see his own students, they often have uh, mutually exclusive uh, philosophies, uh, and yet he took them all under his wing in a way. So that's what it was all about, and that's what my, my blog and my website are aiming to do. So I really appreciate that. that uh, what well, you thank said. you, Ed, and I appreciate what you're doing. And it's absolutely the most interesting thing humanity can do. The worst is when somebody comes along and says, here's what you must believe, and you say, oh, okay, I'll follow you in that. The best is questioning. This is if I have any big complaint about the more conservative religions is they don't allow for questioning and dissent. Now, I actually am very comfortable with religious people. Um, I, uh, I had a fascinating experience 20-odd years ago, 30 years ago. Uh, I worked, um, I, I edited the license application for what became Vision TV, and I worked with the foundational group, Vision TV being Canada's multi-faith, multi faith uh, multi religious television service. And I got to meet and work with people from all faiths, Sikh and Baha'i and Jew and Christian of every stripe, and, and different stripes of uh, Judaism, of course, and uh, Hindu and, and uh, Muslim and uh, various stripes of all kinds uh, within those things. Uh, you know, none of those are monolithic categories. And what I found was that there were enormously intelligent, well-read, thoughtful people in every single one of those religions. It was an eye-open for, for me as an arrogant 23-year-old arrogant atheist who took kind of the tack, and I love Arthur C. Clarke, but kind of the tack that Arthur C. Clarke took when he wrote about atheists, about religious people. Oh, you silly people, let me just show you the light. When in fact there are all kinds of enormously thoughtful, intelligent, highly read, highly literate, thoughtful people uh, who wrestle with the same questions I wrestle with and have come up with different answers. It's not my job to say that they're wrong or that they should follow me, and nor do I have any interest in them proselytizing uh, or being evangelical toward me, telling me that I should follow them. But through that dialogue, hopefully both of us are thinking, all of us are thinking, so there's one thing that I want my book to do. It is that old IBM corporate slogan, think, I want to provoke thought. Now, mentioning uh, TV and also provoking thought, uh, let me ask you this. Uh, we already know that some of your work has been adapted for TV, like uh, the Flash Forward um, and so on. But uh, can you share with us, is there anything else in the works coming down the pipe? Uh, perhaps I was hoping uh, the, the WWW trilogy, which I think would be fantastic on the big or the small screen, Thank you. Yes, Flash Forward was an adaptation of my 1999 novel, the same name. It was a TV series on ABC in the 2009-2010 series starring Joe Fiennes and John Cho. Uh, I was delighted with the show. Uh, I am currently working on an adaptation of Wake, Watch, and Wonder. We're collectively calling it Website, uh, with a company called Original Pictures, a Canadian production company, uh, that has a good track record. We've got a very good pitch. We are in this month actually going out to visit 
various Canadian broadcasters um, to try and line up financing in Canada. Then you go to the States and look for a co-production. It's a long-term process. But the the prospectus we put in, let's say, the, um, the, the proposal package we've got, I think, is an excellent package. The producers involved, uh, it's being jointly executive produced by myself, Kim Todd, and Nicholas Hurst. Uh, we all bring different strengths to the table and a good track record, uh, all three of us. I think we've got a real shot. That said, the track record in general of science fiction works being adapted for television or film is very, very, very small. Um, you know, uh, amongst the Nebula Award winners, uh, of which I'm lucky enough to be one for Terminal Experiment, best novel Nebula winners, only two have ever been adapted. Dune and um, Flowers for Algernon. They both happen to have been adapted repeatedly. Uh, but all the later ones, Rendezvous with Rama, and Ringworld, and The Left Hand of Darkness, and Ender's Game, My Own Terminal Experiment, none of these have been adapted. It's a very, very difficult process because it costs tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars to do so. And I don't have that money. If you've got the money, I'll take it and we'll do it. <laughs> but to find somebody who does have the money and is willing to risk it is very, very difficult. But that said, yes, I'm working on an adaptation of Wake, Watch, and Wonder. Uh, and also uh, my agent and I in Hollywood are pitching my forthcoming novel, Triggers, around to studios and having many people showing some considerable interest in that. Um, right now... Um, we also have some considerable interest in my novel, Rollback, to be adapted for a motion picture. Whether any of these will come to pass, I don't know, but we've all got our fingers crossed. Well, I'm noticing lately there is, I think, or at least it looks like, there is a sort of a very notable increase of science fiction, and especially singularity-related science fiction uh, movies uh, that are supposed to be rolling out in the next couple of years. So, for example, one of the other science fiction authors that I'm working on interviewing is uh, Daniel H. Wilson, whose uh, book, uh, whose novel, Robopocalypse, is to be produced by Steven Spielberg and is due for release in 2013, I think. Also, Ronald Emmerich uh, is working on a Singularity movie, I think. And So I, I think that, I'm, first of all, I'm very happy to hear about uh, the W series. That's fantastic news. And... And I, I believe that you have such an incredible good work that, I mean, it would be a waste if people don't seize the opportunity to put it on the big screen. Thanks. And then you'll discover more millions of people like me who never heard of you before. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. I mean, nothing did more for bringing me new readers than the Flash Forward TV series, which was in over 100 countries worldwide. Yeah. It only lasted one year, but it had a very high profile across the planet and brought me more new readers than anything I'd done in my life. And many of those readers went on to read other works, not just the Flash Forward novel. So, yeah, you, there's nothing to beat the reach of film and television. And I've got my fingers crossed. Um, and I'm looking forward to those movies that you just mentioned as well. Fantastic. So um, let me ask you uh, for your books, though. Uh, what is the – are you currently working on, an, on another book? Yes. And oh, 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 it's – it's my, my career. I do one book a year. and at, I'm always at some point in the production cycle of a novel. So, at this point, I'm in the first draft stage, about two-thirds of the way through, a new book called The Great Martian Fossil Rush, which actually is, a, in some sense, a post-singulatarian novel uh, in that it deals in large part with uploaded consciousness and artificial bodies. Fantastic. And 
And then what's next for Robert J. Sawyer after the book? Is it another book? As you said, every year you publish Every year I, I got bills to pay, so I better write a new book. Um, <laughs> after that, I haven't entirely made up my mind what I'm going to write. Um, I've got several possibilities, but I think um, The Great Martian Fossil Rush is a bit of an aberration for me because it's almost entirely set on Mars. Uh, and I'm going to come back to the present day on Earth uh, with a story. I, I have a pretty good idea of what I'm going to do. Uh, and it's going to be a story that I think will appeal to people who have uh, enjoyed my books that are set in the present day. One of the things I take great pleasure in doing as a science fiction writer is writing present day, not future, not even near future, but present day science fiction. So that novels like Illegal Alien and Frame Shift and Hominids, Humans and Hybrids, Wake, Watch and Wonder are set in the year that the book is published or just about, um, rather than uh, being futuristic. And that's brought me a much bigger readership than things that are even five, ten years down the road has brought me. And for those who do believe in the uh, radical singularity notion, there's no point in writing science fiction 20 years down the road because we're not able to predict that <laughs> part uh, if the singularity is coming down the pipe. So uh, I try to write things that really are real, honest to God, true science fiction, but set in the present day. And the one after the Great Martian Fossil Rush, the Great Martian Fossil Rush, set um, about... Um, 90 years from now, I guess 80 years from now, but um, the uh, the next novel will be set, it'll come out in 2014 and will be set in 2014. So for those of our viewers and listeners who, like me, don't watch TV and do not have the, the good fortune of taking the Toronto subway system, uh, what's the best place for them to find more information about you? I was lucky enough to, or had enough foresight to be the first science fiction writer in the world to have a dedicated website for science fiction. It's at sfwriter.com. S is in science, F is in fiction, writer.com. And it's also a massive website. It's got over a million words of text, 730 documents. Um, you can get lost in there. Lots of stuff about my books. I was the first science fiction writer to give fiction away for free on the web, uh, starting um, in 1995. And there's free fiction there. There's... Uh, uh, readers' guides for my books. There's bibliographies for the research in some of my books. Uh, there's how to write stuff, an enormous amount of stuff about Canadian science fiction, not just my own, but the whole field of Canadian science fiction. Go visit sfwriter.com and, and find out more about me. Fantastic. Robert, the last question that I always ask of, ask of my guests uh, on the show is always the same, and that is, do you have a single message that you would like our viewers and listeners to take away from our interview today? I am, despite everything we've talked about, I am optimistic about the future. I think science and technology has made the world a better place and it will continue to do so. I think we are lucky enough right now to live in the best time that has ever been, but it is going to be exceeded by the times that are to come. We're not at the end of the human era, Whereas, you know, it's actually a very interesting post-singulatarian science fiction film, Star Trek, The Motion Picture, which is about artificial intelligence and humanity at the end merging with AI. But what is the ending card that appears after the last scene? The human adventure is just beginning. We are just at the beginning of this remarkable ride for humanity. It's not the end of an era. It's uh, we're in the middle of the ongoing human adventure. And in my novels, I try to be one of the chroniclers of that. Robert J. Sawyer, 
Thank you very much for taking the time to be here with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Robert.